Okay. Um, what you're going to see now is about a 20-minute uh, picture of a ministry that began about eight or nine years ago out of our church in Huntsville. Um, but the wonderful thing was we could hardly get started before other churches decided to join us. And so it became uh, this ministry to um, a community about six miles north. We were in a very nice, primarily white, middle-class, upper-middle-class suburb. And six miles to the north of us was uh, an historic mill town. The mill, the mill shut down two or three decades ago, and the, the town shut down. Uh, or this part of our city shut down and became a horrible. Uh, I've not seen anything worse in our country than this part of our city. And um, uh, essentially, you just to give you a quick idea of what it was like, before we went in, um, it had become a haven for prostitutes and folks who were selling drugs. Uh, we started with a, a little area of 100 homes uh, called uh, Lincoln Village. Um, and we didn't find one single true father in any of the homes when we started ministering in this community. But um, you're going to see a guy named Mark Stearns who will be, I think he'll be right at the very beginning. He's a wonderful guy. He's one of my dearest friends in the world who is one of those kind of walking miracle magnets. You know, God just does wonderful things around him. And he grew up really rough, as bad of an upbringing as any I've ever heard. Um, didn't finish high school, got a GED, and decided to go to the University of Alabama and try to play football. He made it for Bear Bryant, made the team, and then quit school. So, you know, he just, those kind of things, he has had no success in those kinds of things in life. Came back, um, became very involved with Young Life Ministry, um, and uh, then eventually began ministering to the poor in our community. One day, he grabbed me on a it was a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, I don't remember. And he dragged me up to this place called Lincoln Village. And he just walked me in and introduced me to people. And the sights I saw about made me um, physically ill. And he wanted to make me ill. Um, that was his intent. He's told me that many times afterwards. But if you go into these homes, um, oftentimes there's no floor. There's no working um, facilities. And uh, you can look at a wall sometimes, and, and the whole wall moves because the whole wall is filled with roaches. And that's people live in those kinds of conditions, six miles north of where we were. And we had no idea. Um, this is what God has been doing over the last eight years or so in this little community. I'm a a group of pastors and some people from the staff. And they had one question they asked, how did you get some of the denominations? How did, how did that happen? I think it's really important that these children get to um, experience what my own child get to experience. Like men who've been rescued from certain death, it's just out in the hands of God as weapons are good. These kids have really hard lives and they have a hard life than, than I have ever known. I think I've been given a second chance. I'm all a fight in a good way. The Bible says to learn to do good, to seek justice, to reprove the ruthless, to defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Yeah. 
because God has been gracious, so very gracious to me. Here am I. And I will not allow this grace to go wasted. Being in the village took me to a place where I was outside my comfort zone, where um, my money, um, my connections, all that stuff couldn't meet the needs. You know, once I acknowledged that, that I could not do it, our church couldn't do it alone. It had to be a multitude, it had to be a way of churches that we had to come in as a force of people. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. And I can remember, I just said, please, God, bring people. And all of a sudden, they started trickling in from Weatherly Heights Baptist, First Baptist, to Cole Methodist, to, I mean, all these churches started coming. I hear about what's going on with Lincoln Hills. We'd like to be a part of it. You know, what can we do? So when God brings people into my path and I tell them, you know, what I've seen him do here, um, they always want to come. What really attracted me to the work was the fact that a lot of churches were involved. It wasn't just one particular church, but it was churches from uh, different denominations that came together as a body of Christ and really poured themselves out on this community so I could drink off All I had to say was, what brings passion to them? And they could say, I like school, or I like garden, or I like whatever. And we just started planting that. We have nine staff people. Three go to my church and the rest of the other denominations. And, and I think because of the diversity of the group, um, we complemented each other. Where I'm weekend, this other person's strong in. I think the reason that Lincoln Village works so well is because we all stay within our God-given talents. You know, I'm good at working with kids, put me with some middle schoolers, and they're going to just eat me alive. And Naomi's really great with middle school girls, and so she has that ministry. And Thor's really good with the big boys and, you know, being a father figure and being a mentor for them. And because we don't try to take over each other's jobs, because we don't try to tell each other what to do, we work where we're, you know, where we were given talent. It works. It all flows together and works together perfectly. He takes people, ordinary people that are weak or frail, and he puts them in a position where he uses them. And once they taste that, they get addicted to the power of Christ and move into their lives. It's not the smartest, and it's not the richest, and it's not the mightiest. There's people who are coming in who feel frail, who call on the name of God and say, help me, help me with this mom, help me with this kid. We just have to show up. We just have to show up. I spend every day with them. We went from skating on Friday to the movie on Saturdays, church on Sundays. People thought I was crazy. There was boys that needed help, we needed a role model, needed a man in their life. You see opportunity, you just serve. And you see what happens. You just step out. We have over 100 volunteers that come and just minister to the kids. We do group activities, we do games, we do homework, we have a hot meal, and we do tutoring and reading and math. 100 volunteers come and spend time with these kids every day. Well, the kids understand that that means these volunteers love them. And when the volunteers tell them about God, well, then the kids understand that, oh, God loves me too. When we first started working in these schools, they were at 27% proficient in math and reading. We really targeted specific skills with specific children 
so that no child is overlooked. It's not just a generic intervention program, but we're looking at how each child is performing. And now we're seeing, after working with these kids in third, fourth, and fifth grade, by the time they're in fifth grade, the scores back are the highest in the city and they're passing 100% proficient. This has been a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful program. I don't know what we did before we had the volunteers here. I talk to the students all the time and they seem to be so happy with the volunteers coming in. I see them eating together. I see them in the library studying together. We at Chapman can't say thank you enough. They make a difference. operate our medical and dental clinics 
throughout the community. HEALS is an operation that provides services for both medical and dental care for kids that might not otherwise be able to afford it. And a lot of doctors and dentists help us. We have a paid staff that uses their skills in these clinics. We have three medical and one dental clinic. But we also have a whole array of volunteer specialists that consult and see our kids with HEALS free of charge, including orthodontists and pulmonologists and dermatologists and all the various professional people that believe in our cause and help us. I think what Cross wants us to do is love these kids like they're our own and that we send them whatever they need, whatever it takes to find them is what they'll get. Not having food to eat or not being able to provide for my kids. Through those trials I always desired that, you know, God would bless me to be a blessing. In 2003, a group was formed called the Lincoln Village Preservation Corporation, and they had heard of what was going on with the ministry, and they decided to begin to purchase properties back here, knowing that if we were taking care of educational needs, medical needs, legal assistance, those types of things, but we're sending people back to living housing conditions that weren't suitable, then we were only solving a part of the problem. So they began to purchase houses in this area directly behind Lincoln School, and have volunteers come to completely refurbish the houses. I was at a point where I was just at the bottom of the mirror. I had lost everything due to a bad divorce. Um, I was a single mom of three. I was being evicted out of one of my homes because I lost my job. Mark received me into the Lincoln Village Ministry, um, moved me and my children into a three-bedroom, a beautiful home. Uh, and it was such a blessing. Their primary goal was to provide low-income housing for people, but it's still safe, clean, efficient, and kind of to allow someone to walk in and have a new start, a fresh beginning. We purchased about 36 housing units, as well as a couple commercial buildings. It was the first time that I was able to really come home and, and feel like I was at home, to feel like my children had their space to play, um, and a, a place to have peace. 95% of the work is done with volunteers. Uh, we have groups from all over the southeast that come and work with us. High school, junior high, college age groups come quite often. Uh, the biggest groups that come on a weekly basis are two groups of retired people uh, from two local churches, Wesley Heights Baptist and First Baptist. And they come every week, eight hours a week, and they've been doing that for about six years now. So all the properties that have been redone have been redone by one of those two groups. I always ask God for a support system because I knew that I wanted to become something in life. I knew I wanted to you know, make this thing work uh, for me and my children, but I knew I needed help and I knew I could do it alone. And God placed me in the midst of Lincoln Village Ministry and they supported me in getting my GED. This is now currently my fourth semester in college. That's just one of the examples of how they have supported me. I would not be able to go to college, I would not be able to get my education and go back and restore that time of my life that I lost if it was not for the support system. It goes everywhere from a single mom raising a couple kids to uh, a widow who's actually lived here in the neighborhood for over 20 years. Uh, it's a grandmother who's raising her grandson, so it's a very wide range of people that live here. We also have a couple staff members uh, that live in our housing so that they're a part of the community. So when someone asks me who lives in the housing, I say it's friends, it's family. Those are the people that we have down here.
the neighborhood is awesome, um, filled with people that are full of God. I began to just step out of faith and begin to minister to different women, and, and God began to show me it's not all about what you have materially, but it's about what you have spiritually to offer. To have people living in the community and let them know that we've made more of an investment this time. We come from outside and come down here to work in this area, but we actually have people who desire to live in this area to be such a part of it. I think the relationships that are built by our staff members living here uh, are key. Uh, we're just considered family with them. By God's grace and by his hand and by uh, him using Lincoln Village Ministries, I've been able to go out and be a witness because I have a strong support system here with them. Back in 1992, through prayer and a joint venture with Madison County Commissioners, we started the harvest program with one acre of produce to grow produce for the poor elderly in the community. Uh, and we peas that first year, peas and beans. And they had the, the farmers from A&M's research farm come down and plant it that first year. After the crops came up, they got the word out. People started coming out and picking out the garden. And they used some volunteers to help with harvesting. And they would come together in the mornings and just meet and pray. And we used to stay out in the country. We had plenty of people. My husband always needed God. And we had plenty. But man, you know, he passed and it's just neutral. This God is a blessing for me. Nobody knows about it, but it's a blessing for me. Eventually, the people that came and picked out the garden started coming and, and asking, can we pray with you guys? And, of course, that answer was yes. And uh, then it evolved to what the Tuesday morning services are now, where people come together and we share a message, we, we worship, and we learn these new songs, these old spiritual songs. And, we have prayer. You know, there's a lot of people coming up here to go to church. And they all come, you know, to the community because they just to get busy. Because they all get somebody to choose. Through this garden, it's evolved into relationship. That's something you ain't got to buy. When you want to fix the income, you don't have any money to waste. This year, we planted 40 acres. And we have over 500 families that pick out these gardens that couldn't afford to go get fresh peas or fresh beans, uh, fresh okra. But even more than food, it's an opportunity to build relationship with these folks. They're living in a way they can. There's some nice people. So you don't catch me a few that don't want to be nice to everybody. They're nice to everybody. I've learned more from them than I've been able to share with them. I'm a mom and Jeff. It's one of the things I deal with in Lincoln Village are children that have been sexually abused or physically abused or neglected. Getting them involved in extracurricular activities Um, that is a traditional therapy, but it is therapy for these kids because um, that's not the norm for them. When the 
they know that they can come somewhere and they can be safe and they can be loved and they can be surrounded by people who believe in them and who will support them, then, I mean, it just gives them hope in a place that maybe they didn't have hope for. And it gives them an idea of what they could be and of what God wants them to be. Last year, we were taking kids to summer camp. I had a 13-year-old girl sitting next to me in the car, and we passed the Hexler Airport, and it was dusk out, and she said to me, um, what is that? And I said, the airport? She has never left the project at 13 years old. She also asked me, what are we going to eat at camp? Are we going to eat once a day, or are we going to eat three meals a day? These kids, it's hard for them to aspire to be anything more um, without getting out there and seeing that there's something else. Um, I had a little boy say to me, um, when I get older and get out of jail, he just assumed he was going to be in jail because all of his family did, will he still be able to do gymnastics? And so my job is to, to teach these kids coping skills and to enable them to cope with some problems that they're dealing with living in this low-income area. We were driving through on the network when they happened to notice a couple of kids doing what we would call stunts. It could be like a, a back foot standing there. And we said, we need to get these kids a coach. My kids that I started when they're three, and by the time they're 10, they're doing what Jeremiah and DJ and Eric are doing. These kids I coached for a year and a half. So these kids are pretty amazing.
want to be um, a lawyer. I have to go get my nails done, so I want to have enough money to get my nails done and get my hair done every day. I'm going to be an artist because they make lots of cool pictures that inspire people about making their lives better. Our ministry made a 20-year commitment to this community, and the church is the final piece of what we're trying to do here. And, and, and we're hoping that over time, folks in this community will be leaders in the church, elders, deacons, and this will be a place that folks can feel at home, that when they come to the village church, they feel welcome, they hear the gospel, they are encouraged. Folks who don't know Jesus, hopefully will come to know Jesus through this ministry. So it's a real holistic ministry. Not just ministering to the physical needs of people, also ministering to the spiritual needs of people as well. And we're seeing great things, and we cannot wait to see what else God's going to do in and through this church. You'll be able to do something if you're just willing to hope. Um, there's a lot I could say about that. Let me just say a couple things, and I would love to get any comments or questions from you. But uh, actually, um, the church has always been our plan to have as the center of this community. And, and um, here's what one of the sad things we saw when we went in there is that there were three or four other churches in this community, not one of which had anything to do with this community. And uh, for instance, one of them, uh, if you would walk up to the door, on the outside of the door that's right in this community, it had a dress code that essentially excluded almost every single person in that community. Um, so planning a church in there has always been our heart because we, we felt like that had to be the center of what we were doing. Uh, and, and wonderfully, some of those churches there in that community now have, have begun to change and begun to be involved in this community. Um, the other thing that's going on is building a children's home right now. One man came out there and just essentially gave about a million dollars for a children's home to get started. Um, I get emotional every time I see this, this uh, thing because it's because God has done this thing. It's, it was so wonderful uh, that he obviously had prepared the community to be involved. It wasn't, it wasn't just our church. We got involved, but immediately, as Mark said, many, many other denominations, other churches came in and got involved. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done. We did make a long-term commitment because what we saw is that uh, a lot of communities like this get very, um, they built up this really thick skin toward people who come in and are out. They, they go in for a very short period of time, a big flash, and they're gone. And so we knew it was 10, 20 years, and maybe for an eternity that we'll be involved in this community in some way. But let me just stop there and ask you, um, any comments? How does that strike you? Um, or... Any concerns as you look at something like that, or what questions would you have about it? What was the scene that being involved? I mean, obviously, you didn't have gymnastics for it at the beginning. Right. I mean, we had nothing. Yeah. And then, yeah. How did it snowball from there? Yeah, that's great. Um, historically, what happened was Mark Stearns, the very first, the guy that spoke the most, uh, he in '92 started this movie, this ministry called Harvest, which was to grow crops for the poor. And it went from I forget, you know, one acre to how many I forget now that are being actually um, cultivated for the poor. And uh, but that that was there and well in place. And then Mark, um, I I called him onto our staff to be um, one of our pastors 
And um, uh, essentially, his primary role was to help us as a church be involved in mercy ministry. Because that was his heart. Because he was just very capable in that area. And I didn't have anywhere near this grand vision to start with. And he didn't either, really. But he began to just go uh, into this community. Uh, he had gotten to know some of the people here because of the harvest ministry. And, and he just started to go up there and pray. And he would go up there all hours of the night, even, and just sit. And it was a, it was a hellish place, truly. I mean, it was very loud in the middle of the morning. And, um, like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, it was just... It was just like hell in, in, in many, many ways. And, uh, um, and he really developed a burden for that place. And that's when he came and got me and just drove me up there in, in his attempt to make me, he wanted me to throw up because of what I saw up there. And it really, that day it just became clear that, that this, we, we felt like this is where the kingdom of God needed to be manifest and um, that God really wanted us to do something with this. And that from that, became a, uh, there was a long process of speaking to uh, our elders, our deacons, a number of people in the church, and then the church all together. And it was, you know, it was a process. And it began in the school. Essentially, Mark, when we said, yes, let's do it, Mark went to this little elementary school, which is a public school, and went to the principal and said, I'm Mark Stearns, what do you need? And uh, she said, we need 10 uh, overhead projectors. She didn't think, you know, that Mark was for real or anything else. And uh, so Mark came back with ten overhead projectors the next day. And, and from that point, um, we really just started in that school, serving, not not telling them at all what to do. We were just there to help whatever they needed. And uh, and that developed into a huge tutorial ministry with lots of tutors from lots of different um, churches in the in the community. And from there, it just grew. And it's Mark's Mark's. Two things I think really helped us on a human level. One is that Mark um, is not territorial. And uh, he's actually, for him to be on film that much is a big deal for him. Uh, he actually suffers with a kind of paranoia, so he doesn't like to be in public. It, but God calls him to, to speak a lot, and he should. He's wonderful. Um, but he's not territorial uh, and love for other people to be involved. The second thing was his... his um, way he would invite people would just be to say, come look around, see what's going on, and you tell me what it is you're good at, what you like to do, and we'll figure out how to make that work here. Because everything needs to be done. There's nothing that doesn't have to be done in that community. So that's, that's kind of how it got started. How is it funded? How is it funded? funded. That's a great question. Um, there are actually now, interestingly, almost, I think there are just over 20 full-time staff just doing Lincoln Village ministry. And what has happened is a number of churches have said, we'll, we'll fund one staff person. And uh, so we've had several churches do that, which is amazing. Uh, and then um, it became a part of our regular budget. Uh, a number of churches in the community started putting it in, in their budget as well. Um, we, had, uh, we had one uh, man early on who really wanted to be a part of this. He was a uh, successful real estate developer. and. And he gave a significant amount of money pretty quickly uh, that enabled us to do buy the houses, for instance, that you were um, that you saw. Uh, another person came along. I mentioned to you um, to help us build a children's home in there, and it essentially has has or will by the time it's all said and done give us about a million dollars. So uh, the other man gave us about six hundred thousand, and uh, and then you have individual churches putting us in their budget, um, funding staff people. And, you know, there's, 
I don't know if Mark has ever asked for a nickel. I really do. It's one of those amazing things that God has just done. I mean, it's, a, it's a really sweet picture of, of the community doing this, really. It is, isn't it? Yeah. 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 How many different churches are part of the network, though? That's a good question. Um, I can't give you an updated figure, but I would imagine there are probably six to eight at least, and it may be some have come and done something and then not are staying, don't stay regularly involved, but they have done it. We probably had 20, 30 churches do something at some point in time. I would imagine there are half a dozen or so that are regularly involved in it. That's just a guess. Anything else? Yeah, I heard you talk about this uh, at one point already, but uh, not everyone else has. Uh, you haven't been there for a few years, right? Uh, and it's still going on. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about? Well, I go back and I see it when I'm back in town. Um, but uh, yeah, it has continued. I mean, really, truly, Mark Stearns was the pioneer. I was the, uh, I you know preached. I started preaching out of the Book of Acts. Imagine that, um, trying to get our church outward focused. Um, and so I was kind of the public face to a large degree in our church, but Mark was too. But really, Mark was indeed the pioneer, and it is his full-time ministry now. And uh, so um, uh, it has it hadn't skipped a beat um, since I've since I've not been there. I was involved truly as in a way to get our church involved. And we we had uh, one of the guys you saw in this uh, video is a twin. We had those boys in our home a good bit and would bring them to church on Sunday. So you kind of adopted different families. We, a lot of us did those kinds of things, but uh, it has not it has not skipped a beat since I've... It's gotten uh, just even stronger, really, um, since that time. All right. Anything else? Anybody... Did, does any of that make you nervous? Any questions like, should the church really be doing this? Are you... Okay with that? Because I've gotten criticism for doing this kind of thing, and uh, in various in various uh, ways. But if you're not not concerned about it, we'll press on. <laughs> All right, easy audience, very good. Okay. Well, it is what time? All right, it's eight o'clock. You want to take just? We just take two or three minutes stretch, and then uh, we'll look at um, Evangelical Alliance which is really Christians working together to make a difference. And we end at nine, right? Right. All right, now we take just a few minutes to stretch break, and then we'll, we'll look at this. Can, are you, can you finish? Are you going to finish your book tonight? Uh, uh, can you, can you uh, Sunday? Yeah. Maybe Sunday would be on. Okay. Because my time is. Check me back. 
Can we do that now? Is it unassuming? So we can probably pop that door. Mm -hmm. Somebody will let us in. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, I don't want to. Yeah. Then maybe we'll feel better. But you can trust me. Yes, I will. Yeah, I was really getting close to the end. Okay. Um, <laughs> You have 15 more cases. Okay. But there's no way I'll get to it today or tomorrow now, just with I know what my schedule is. And Sunday. Are you sure? I am. All right, we're ready. So I would end up having it on somebody else's. Actually, this is my weekend to read a lot. So. I don't even know the author. One thing I thought. Very good author. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite critiques. Mm -hmm. Good. New Atheism was written by. by yes, sir. Oh, very, very so good. Bill has become sort of the mission statement of your church. So what's it's a big part of it. Uh, it fits in with our uh, mission statement, but it's just one aspect of the mission for us. There, it's a major one, obviously. We've, we've um, devoted more resources to that. I don't know what any other thing you've written not so wide for missions. Well, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. But locally, it's yeah. written on apologetic missions, written on theology, yeah. I mean, or history. Interracial undercity church. And that was really whole everybody it's actually in that search. Decade old? Old. No, that's about a decade old. I think it is. So that's what I was wondering. We actually, uh, the whole staff read that book together uh, uh, no, we, we a year or two ago. We felt like and, uh, one really enjoyed it. That our church had become kind of inward part from it. We're really more concerned about us and not concerned enough about our community. So this was one of the things that we did. So it wasn't initially. Oh, sure. Yeah. Exactly what it was. We did things in the community that wasn't much of a focus. Yeah. It has become now a very big part of what we're trying to do. But but we would say to people, we understand Lincoln Village may not be, you may be called to do something else. But we did encourage as many people as wanted to. Uh huh. We've got to be a part of it. True. So it's a, it's a part of your outreach, but it's not your entire that's for, for being. That's correct. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Now, with the planning of that church in that community, that church uh -huh. is sure. solely for that community. Well, that, that is his mission. Yeah, no, they'll do, I'm sure when they can and are able, they'll do foreign missions as well. But that's their reason for being. That's my difference in that community. Yeah. The reason the women Okay, let's uh, let's jump back in. Let me just damn mention one thing. I just I'll speak to you very very quickly, um, and that is the reason I asked if anybody had any concerns is uh, it's because 
Um, there have been a number of people in the church, in the evangelical church even, um, that have said, well, this seems like uh, liberalism. Um, isn't this what the liberal church does? And um, it seems like there was a movement back in the late part of the uh, 19th century, early part of the 20th century, called the social gospel, which was a movement to get the church to really be involved in these kinds of things, transforming society. However, what happened with that was that the heart of the gospel, being born again, being converted, was, was really dropped out of it. And so it became a very liberal seeking to make a difference in the community without seeking to make a difference in the hearts of men and women. And that's not at all what we're about. Obviously, we're about both. We're about all of that. And, and Sunday morning, we talked about um, word and deep ministry that God has called us to very, very clearly. And uh, was really, I don't have it memorized, but your mission statement, when I read your mission statement, I knew that, that we would see eye to eye on this stuff because it, it has something to do with blessing this community in both spiritual and physical ways, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have the word right, but um, that's what uh, the church, um, the church has always been called to that. The problem is, and I'll talk about this Sunday um, a bit, a lot of times as evangelicals, we felt like our only, or fundamentalists, but sometimes evangelicals, our only reason for being is to just to, to get people into heaven. Um, now that's, that's um, overstated. But we have, we have focused on spiritual needs to the detriment of including the broader needs of people. The liberal church oftentimes is focused on the physical, social needs, etc., to the detriment of the real heart of the gospel, spiritual needs. So um, the gospel calls us to really pattern our lives after Christ and make a difference in, in every way that we are able. Okay. Yes, sir? What, what are ways that... Uh they've safeguarded from slipping all the way away from the spiritual needs. That's a great question, yeah. How have we kept from becoming yeah. more involved in physical? Yeah, well, um, part, a number of ways, uh, one of which is Mark Stearns is, he is an evangelist at heart. I mean, he can, he cannot meet somebody without living in the cross. I mean, he's just incredibly gifted. And, um, he truly meets people at the gas station and they, they get on their knees and pray to receive Christ. He's just a very amazing evangelist. And so that's at the heart of his life. He, so he will always be. And when, we, when we've spoken together, he makes the point that he loves things like the United Way, but we are not the United Way. Uh, we may do some things that would be consistent with some of the good things the United Way does, but at the very heart of what we're doing is always... Um, Introducing people to Christ and, and helping them to grow up in Christ. But beyond that, then planting this church um, has, uh, again, has been our way of saying that the heart of what we're to be about is um, God's people um, introducing others to, to faith, uh, meeting their needs, um, but never, ever, ever leaving behind the fact that Christ died for our sins to forgive us. And so, you know, it would be, we'd have to have a change of personnel completely for us to be willing uh, not to do those kinds of things, not to have, you know, salvation at the very heart of what we're about. Does that answer your question? That's a really good question because the tendency and what happens over time in history is look over history is that people drift and do leave go one way or the other, typically. And so you have to do to be a healthy church, you should be doing both. Uh, a healthy you know, as followers of Christ, we should be doing what he did. All right. Um well, I showed that to you primarily because what I'm going to do now is look at something called the Evangelical Alliance, which um, 
started in 1846, a number of evangelicals coming together for the sake of mission. Uh, it was intentional, uh, intentionally um, supposed to be a, um, a unity of Christians from around the world. Um, and then tomorrow what I'm going to be doing uh, is looking at uh, two of my heroes, which I mentioned, Wilberforce and Shaftesbury, both of whom um, were very involved in helping the poor in, in different ways and helping a number of different kinds of um, helping to meet a number of different kinds of needs. So unity is really key, I think. I don't think God has called us to do this uh, on our own. Um, and uh, we are called to do all kinds of things as the people of God. Okay, so let's talk about the Evangelical Alliance. And we will end um, by 9 o'clock. But I just want to give you at least a taste for what people have sought to do uh, in joining together with other Christians um, for the sake of mission, for the sake of, of the gospel. We saw in the, uh, the first lecture today that with evangelicalism, the idea of denomination becomes lower in importance than the gospel, than being born again, than um, the new life that is caused by uh, the new birth. And what happens then in uh, the 19th century is that you have this growing sense that, gosh, there are people in all kinds of denominations that are evangelical that we have a lot in common with. And so in the 19th century, for the very first, well, not for the very first time, but for the, for the most, in the most case, you have, in the 19th century, you have evangelical societies develop up that have people from a lot of different denominations joining together. It's not a church. They're not establishing a separate church. But the, um, an example of this would be the missionary societies that grow up. And, and I'll close at the end by just showing you how significant it was that these societies were formed for the sake of mission. Um, but one of the most significant um, ministries that grew up in the 19th century as a result of evangelicals coming together is uh, the Evangelical Alliance, which is still in existence and probably has about a million or so members uh, now. Um, and what I want to do is just talk about it a bit because um, I think Christ calls us to be united. And I don't, I'm not necessarily saying structurally, but practically for mission, God calls his people to be together. Um, uh, prayer of uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17 is one good example of that. Um, you, could, you could list a number of others. But here's what I want to say. Anytime in the history of the church that people try to come together across denominational lines, it oftentimes causes a lot of problems. There's a lot of um, questions that come up and people get concerned about, can we really join with somebody else? Is that okay? Now that was a bigger deal when there was the, you know, the, the church-state relationship was much more significant. But um, let me ask you, I, I don't know where you are. I would guess I know where you are, but I don't know. Where would you be with respect to joining together with other people from different denominations for the sake of mission, just in general? Anybody have concerns about that? Is something that you have done? Is something that you are okay with doing? Or what concerns might you have about something like that? I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but I don't know if you saw this or not, but there was um, uh, one place where you saw something on the screen from Lincoln Village that said so-and-so Catholic Church that had come there. And, and uh, when I've shown that, that's sometimes one of the first questions I get. Now, let me just say, um, the Catholic Church isn't teaching our Bible studies there. Uh, so, uh, I'm just get that out of the way. So, uh, But nevertheless, um, what questions or concerns or where would you be as a part of the body of Christ with this. 
You want to speak to that? Maybe I should just put you on the spot and ask you where. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Since okay. I can't speak for everyone, but as uh, the leader of the church, I have no concerns at all. Okay. Um, okay. I mean, we, we're very ecumenical in terms of our association with denominations and everything else. Um, there may be some people in the church who would have reservations in joining with some branches of the church that are way to the left. Sure. I personally wouldn't have a problem with that as long as the mission is well-defined enough that yeah. we could work together. Yeah. We're okay. a pretty diverse group. Yeah. All right. Anybody else want to say anything about that? Or anybody have any concern? I mean, now that he's spoken, you can't have a concern. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but anybody, does it make you nervous at all? Or should there be things that you would be careful about if you do that? Yes. Well, I, I see myself still developing or still growing or changing or something uh, more and more from the uh, fundamentalist. In the, in the book, he had six different stages mm -hmm. of ecumenical. Uh -huh. I think I may have jumped over a few of those <laughs> and then I bounced back. Uh, I find myself moving towards really working together with all people who really have faith mm -hmm. in the Lord. Uh, and yet, I do think of, of doctrine is, is very important. Sure. Uh, but I think I'm looking now more at what I consider the cardinal doctrines that we can agree on. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that I used to think that were so important, I still think they're important for me mm -hmm. to study. Mm -hmm. But not to make that a basis for, for fellowship or working together. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I'm moving in the right way, at least I hope so. That's, that's good to hear. I mean, that's encouraging to hear, hear a bit of your story. Um, I would have been, at a time in my life, very concerned about it, quite frankly. Um, uh, now I'm wide open to it. And here's what I would say. Uh, you know, we've had, at Lincoln Village, um, we've had a lot of different churches. We've had unbelievers come and be involved with us and Jewish people be involved with us. Now, again, they, of course, aren't teaching any Bible studies, but they can hammer a nail. Um, would we work with, um, you know, you have in the evangelical movement with people like Francis Schaeffer and others, John Stott, uh, you have this term that came up in the, in the 20th century called co-belligerency. The idea being that, gosh, as a Protestant, I can work with a Catholic on right-to-life kind of issues. You know, there's no reason why we can't join together for that kind of mission and say we may not have, we do have some strong differences in theology and, and some other things, but nevertheless, cannot we join together for that um, sake and do this together. So um, I'm very much open to it and part of what drives me is the idea that, that um, the world has to see the church together. Uh, if we really are one, then there should be some reality to that. And uh, that's, where, that's where I'm um, very moved by. And, and when the church looks at how fractured we are, that I think um, causes problems. And then we have to recognize that it causes problems. And it should cause problems. Uh, because they should be able to see by our unity, and again, I'm not necessarily saying structural unity, but the fact that we join together for a mission. Um, they should be able to see that, that, that Christ who came to create one body of Christ is real. And the evidence of that being in the way we live and interact with other people. All right, well... Now I'm going to narrow this because this is just joining of evangelicals. Um, and even that, as you're going to see, got pretty messy and got pretty uh, difficult because this kind of thing does usually cause problems. Oftentimes when you see people coming together, 
to join um, in some kind of unity in the church, it causes splits. And that, that happens not infrequently in the history of the church. But what I want to do is just give you uh, a little, a couple of pictures here. One is um, the foundation of the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, let me just, before I go there, let me say this. Um, evangelical Alliance still is in existence today. A couple of purposes provide a prophetic and evangelical voice in the public square. So again, um, that's something that you would see evangelicals doing more than at least uh, fundamentalists would have done uh, several decades ago. Secondly, to motivate, mobilize, and equip evangelicals as they engage in spiritual and social transformation as active citizens. Um, okay. Now, with that, what I want to do is give you a very, very brief history, and I mean really brief, of the foundation of the Free Church of Scotland in 19th century Scotland. Um, happens in uh, 1843 when uh, essentially the, the evangelicals decide to leave the Church of Scotland, which is a Presbyterian church, to form a separate denomination. And they, I'll speak to why they did that. But then you're going to see them be um, a major impetus behind the forming of the Evangelical Alliance, seeking to have evangelicals around the world uh, join together for the sake of mission. So, um, background. Uh, let's go back into the 18th century, so 1700s. Uh, what we're looking at uh, there in the Church of Scotland, Presbyterian Church, you have in the um, 18th century primarily the so-called moderates who were uh, in the ascendancy. They were largely in charge of the church in, in the Presbyterian world in Scotland, and they were the folks who really embraced the Enlightenment. And so they were preaching behaviorism oftentimes, not always. But if I've read hundreds of their sermons and they preached a lot of be good kind of sermons, um, devoid of the kind of things that we talked about earlier, union with Christ and the need for the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, etc. Um, evangelicals, though, toward the end of the 18th century, um, do begin to grow stronger. And uh, by the middle of the 19th century, they are the stronger uh, party in, um, in the Scottish church, in the, in the Church of Scotland. But here's what, what has happened in, um, in Scotland, because it was a state church. Ministers were, what they would have called, intruded onto the um, uh, churches. In other words, the government picked your pastor. Um, that's a crude way of saying it, but that was largely true. Uh, is that fair to say? All right. Um, <laughs> i got to make sure I've got Got a true Scott over here. Um, and I'm saying it very, very crudely, but that, that you had either a patron or the government essentially say, this is who your pastor is going to be. Now, we would be up in arms here if that were the case. And what happens in um, end of uh, the 18th century, early part of the 19th century, the evangelicals in the Church of Scotland get really um, animated about this, agitated over this, and seek to essentially um, bring the church to a place where they will no longer allow that to be the case. At least have some kind of veto power, if not be able to outright choose uh, the pastor for the local congregation. They get enough votes in the church um, to bring that about. However, they can't come up with a solution with the government. The government simply says, no, uh, we're not going to change. And so what happens then is um, the evangelicals, for the most part, will leave the Church of Scotland. And let me just describe it briefly to you because... This will give you a sense that it's kind of astonishing to us, but um, in the 19th century, oftentimes in places like Scotland, you know, the big entertainment was church activity and church debates and what was going on in the church. So, on uh, 
On 18 May 1843, uh, you have the day of the opening assembly of the Church of Scotland. And on this day, uh, to give you a sense of how excited people were about what was going to happen, because they knew that a split was coming. They knew that the evangelicals were leaving the denomination. And what you had in the Church of Scotland was evangelicals sitting on one side of the church and the moderates sitting on the other. No lie. And they were... They were completely separate from each other. They were in the same denomination. And um, uh, people began to fill the galleries of the church where this was going to take place. Uh, in fact, by 5 a.m., the church was jam-packed, and it was a huge church. And uh, in addition to that, by early afternoon, uh, thousands of people lined the st streets to see what was going to happen with the evangelicals. as they Would they leave, indeed, or was this all just a bunch of talk? Well, uh, three men um, that I... Um, have read a fair amount about uh, William Cunningham, Thomas Chalmers, Robert Canlis. These were leaders of the evangelicals, and uh, they um, they were treated like celebrities. They were celebrities by this stage in in the church. I mean, people knew them. They had led the charge of the evangelicals to really um, try to keep the government from intruding ministers on them. And as they arrived, they're kind of uh, celebrated. Um, but what happens then is that uh, David Welsh, as the as the assembly opens, David Welsh, the retiring moderator, reads a long protest against the state and then files out of the church and nearly half of the church, delegates there, the elders and, and pastors who were there, nearly half of them, all evangelicals, leave the church and march uh, down the road with um, literally people lining the streets with handkerchiefs, waving handkerchiefs. Uh, they walk down to a, another place in, uh, in Edinburgh, in the city, where they will then... Um, officially organized the Free Church of Scotland. All evangelicals. Now, um, here's what... Uh, this is one of those stories that is both something I think we admire and, and yet at the same time recognize that these are fallen men doing this. But here's what you can admire about this. They um, voluntarily... In doing this, again, you've got to think church-state. They're connected to the state. The state has a lot to do with taking care of them financially. In leaving the church-state to form their own church, they voluntarily relinquished their churches, their mansions, their social status, their stipends, and all for a very uncertain future. And so it was a very, um, you know, it was, it was uh, a matter of deep conviction. These men were willing to give, uh, give it all up. Um, as they left, one of the uh, people who stayed behind said this, the best ministers and the best portion of our people have gone. Now, one of the um, leaders in the government who was sympathetic to the evangelicals said this, they have abandoned um, that public station which was the ambition of their lives and have descended from certainty to precariousness and most of them from comfort to destitution solely for their principles. Now, Cunningham, who I've done a lot of work on, I did my PhD on him, um, who had a lot to do with essentially driving this move to leave the denomination. Um, he spoke at their general assembly, that first meeting, and uh, said several things, and I want to go through them with you just quickly. First, um, in severing the state connection, they might escape the plagues likely to befall the state for its heinous dealings with the Church of Scotland. Cunningham speaks in very strong terms, and uh, this is mild compared to what comes next. Second, they were safer separated from moderatism, the Antichrist of the Church of Scotland, the beast which in 1834 received a deadly wound, and in God's good time may be uh, visited with a more overwhelming destruction. 
1834 is an important date in um, the evangelicals winning uh, a, a way to kind of keep the government completely in, or from being too involved. However, um, you know, this is one of the leaders uh, of this movement out, and he leaves for, for great reasons, but he, he's a strong character, and he says things in a way at times that we couldn't commend. I mean, here is something that, you know, was just wrong. He was just wrong. Um, they were very godly men who were left behind in, in the Church of Scotland. And in fact, interestingly enough, the Church of Scotland will have a kind of revival uh, after this takes place so that it becomes even healthier uh, than it would have been otherwise. Uh, third, they had devoted enough time to the controversy over their constitutional rights, and the separation would allow them to get on with the great object of the church to make Christ known. Now that's legitimate. They had. They had spent a ton, ten years in this conflict that had really been preceded by decades of, of bits and pieces of that. So uh, it was time to move on, and, and they did. Now, to give you a sense of how uh, significant um, the free church becomes very quickly, uh, they did have um, great hopes for the future. And they had a man named Thomas Chalmers who really was at the head of this movement. And he was, like John Wesley before him, uh, and a, a, a genius uh, in administrating. And um, he will, they had been laying plans for a while, but this is what happens. Um, it, it was said that carrying the light of the gospel to every cottage door within the limits of their Scottish territory seemed within their grasp as nearly 600 congregations rallied to the banner of evangelical freedom. So roughly 600 congregations would pull out of the Church of Scotland and had great hopes, essentially, for establishing a new national church to reach, uh, to reach Scotland. Now, um, to the onlooking world, uh, well, let me just, Cunningham um, was speaking a lot at this time to try to encourage them. He said, be encouraged by the conviction that by ardent zeal and wisdom, and cordial co cooperation and united exertion by making sacrifices of your own ease and comfort and enjoyment that over the whole extent of Scotland something may yet be seen and realized similar to that described in the language of Scripture that a nation was born in a day. Now to onlookers, as you look at what happened with the Free Church of Scotland, it did seem like, in a sense, a nation was born in a day. Let me just give you a sample of what happened. In four years, after 1843, as these um, folks left, they... Um, constructed over 730 places of worship throughout Scotland, supplied them with ministers, paid each minister an adequate stipend, and by the following year, erected over 400 manses. Uh, its newly created national system of over 500 elementary schools was staffed by nearly 650 teachers, filled by over 44,000 students. Two teacher training academies and one theological college were established, and its outlay for foreign missions during the first five years more than double that of the Church of Scotland during the five years leading up to the disruption. So it's tremendous energy behind what's going on. And, and, you know, and it's wonderful to see, even though there was sin involved in this disruption, there were high principles as well, but God blessed both sides. Um, as I said, the Church of Scotland had a sense of uh, revival, but the Free Church of Scotland then started and, and really grew very, very rapidly and became a dominant force in, um, in Scotland for many, many years to come. Now, um, today, it's a very, very small church. But at the time, it was a very, very significant uh, movement. All right. Uh, when, um, when this happens, uh, Cunningham will kind of lead a delegation to, uh, to America to uh, express to people like uh, uh, Charles Hodge and others at Princeton and other of the um, evangelical seminaries in this country 
tell them the story of the Free Church of Scotland to solicit their prayers and their support. This is a big deal. Um, when he comes back from uh, America, he um, says to the Free Church, it seems to me that it's more important for us to be united with evangelicals than it is to be united with the state. Uh, they, the Free Church left saying we would, we would go back to the Church of Scotland if the state would change its ways in a sense. Um, but now you see some changes in their own thinking, and that is we really need to uh, ally ourselves with um, evangelicals around the world. And there's this growing desire then for unity among all kinds of evangelicals, William Cunningham in England um, and in Baptist Noel, a uh, very uh, significant uh, leader there, Anglican minister. He's been encouraging unions in, uh, in continental Europe, uh, Merle Dalbing, who's um, really been seeking uh, to have uh, evangelicals unite in Switzerland, etc. In America, you've got uh, President Chan and William Patton. So there's this growing sense in the 19th century um, that what is really important is that we unite as evangelicals. Our denominations aren't as key. Our connection to the state isn't as important. But what is really important is that we come together for the sake of mission, that we be united. Now, causes of... Um, of this growing desire, I'll list a few. One is, and I've hinted at this already, division hinders mission. Um, I'll give you one, uh, one example of this. There was the growing conviction in the minds of sincere Christians belonging to different bodies that their real union of heart and judgment was far greater than the outward appearance. It was, however, almost entirely hidden from the eyes of the world by the variety and frequent bitterness of ecclesiastical controversies. Uh, the evil thus arising was great and notorious and had a most pernicious effect in uh, weakening the hands of Christians and hindering the spread of the gospel. So um, there was a, a very strong sense that we have, uh, we have argued a lot, and they have, um, in Scotland, in England, in America. You know, I know Scotland better because that's what I studied, but there were lots and lots of arguments, even between Presbyterian bodies that believed basically the same things. There was tons of argument. And so they're finally trying to say, look, that has not helped the mission of the church for us to show the world that mostly what we do with each other is arguing. Um, you had other things that were going on, though, uh, that led to this real growing desire for evangelicals to, uh, to, grow to, to um, join together. One was a mood of millennial expectation. Uh, there was a sense that, um, that what is happening here is that you have uh, premillennialism, uh, uh, really taking um, front seat, as it were, in among evangelicals in a sense of what's, when is Christ coming back and, and how is he going to come back and um, is he going to establish a reign, of a literal reign of a thousand years here on the earth. And more and more of that is growing. And there's a sense that, um, that we might be able to hasten that, you know, Christ's return, if we join together uh, as evangelicals and truly seek to carry out the mission of Christ. So that's a part of what's going on. Third thing is, and this is where it's not really pretty. Um, third thing is, there's this resurgence of Roman Catholicism. Um, in the 19th century, one of, the, one of the things that is not pretty about evangelicals in the 19th century is a very rabid anti-Catholicism. And so what is happening in um, Scotland, in England, in Ireland, is that you're having uh, emancipation laws be passed, etc., that are allowing Catholics some of the same kinds of civil rights that um, others had, but they had not had up until this time. And that's causing some to fear. You're having um, famines in Ireland, many of uh, many Irish people who were Roman Catholic coming into Scotland, etc. And that's creating some fear 
And um, that pushes then them to kind of circle the wagons, as it were, against the Roman Catholics. Now, that's not pretty. And, and so we have to look at it like that. It's something that's not glorious. It's, it's a mixed movement, like every movement in the history of the church has been. There's some wonderful things about it, but some things that aren't so wonderful. All right. Now, they are going to um, uh, meet uh, the American Presbyterian minister, William Patton, proposes that essentially they have an international meeting in London with um, representatives from every evangelical body in the world coming together. Huge in endeavor. They decide beforehand though, to have a, a preliminary gathering at Liverpool uh, where they can kind of hash out, you know, what are we going to, what are we going to um, believe? What is going to be our doctrinal basis that we come together on? And um, and here's here's this will give you a sense of how scared to death people were about leaving their evangelical body and going to join with other evangelicals from different denominations. They thought one of two outcomes would happen. Uh, one would be either the meeting would be a holiday affair, a shaking of hands, a bandying of compliments while consistency was forgotten, conviction smothered, and truth sacrificed. In other words, a horrible meeting where we just compromise everything to come together. Or, uh, if the parties assembling should speak out freely, the statements of differences would embitter alienations till the combustible materials would ignite and explode to the shame and scandal of the Christian profession. They are scared to death that in their effort to come together for the sake of mission to show the world that we are united, that we are one, that they might become so mad at each other when they get together that it will just destroy uh, what they were hoping to do. Well, they do finally uh, gather and um, when they uh, are heading toward this meeting, again, just to kind of give you a sense of where they were, one man said he arrived with fear and trembling Others actually started on the journey to the, to the meeting, but were so afraid of what was going to happen that they turned their carriages around and went home. Uh, truly, scared to death. What, what can happen when Christians come together? It seems ironic to us, but that, that was the case. All right, two significant resolutions take place at this meeting that enables them to have a realistic shot at coming together. First, will leave them from any compromise of their own views or sanction of those others on the points in which they differ. In other words, they were saying, look, we recognize we don't always agree. And we do have different uh, ideas, different doctrines. But what we're saying is, in coming together, we don't have to agree fully with each other. We can have differences. We can agree to disagree. Second, leave them from committing their respective churches to the Evangelical Alliance as it was to be an alliance of individual Christians and not of denominations. Now that second one especially was very helpful. Um, and, and, and sometimes I think today, maybe that would be helpful to us as we seek to join together. But anyway, those things uh, happened. What was more important, though, I think, for um, the success, the eventual success of this, was that you have two very significant apologies made. Now, I've said uh, this was at a time uh, when you know, even Presbyterians were fighting Presbyterians, or Baptists were fighting Baptists, or Methodists, etc. I mean, everybody was fighting everybody else in, in many ways. And uh, you have something that really kind of changes the tenor of this preliminary gathering. Um, at one point in the meeting, it was the last night of the gathering, one of the leaders um, offers a resolution calling for humiliation before God and his church for all the divisions of the Christian church, and especially for everything which we have ourselves may have aforetime spoken in theological and ecclesiastical discussions contrary to speaking the truth in love. So he's saying, look, we recognize we have argued against each other instead of working with each other. 
and it's time for us to, to bow the knee and, and to ask God to forgive us. Well, at that point, um, William Cunningham uh, stands up. He's not been called on. He's not supposed to speak, but he stands up in the midst of this large gathering, and he, um, he says, My sole reason for attempting to speak at this early period of the evening is my wish to say what I have repeatedly said before, that I concur most cordially in the expressions of contrition and humiliation which this motion embodies. I feel and know that I myself have been no slight offender. Uh, he, was, he could be pretty brutal in debate. And um, uh, he was a very gifted debater, um, but he didn't leave any room for his enemies to kind of you know, survive the debate. He, was, he could be tough. I trust that I have sometimes felt sincere repentance for harsh judgments. That's true. And harsh words employed in theological and controversial discussions. He's saying, I have, I have been guilty of this. I trust at times I have been uh, able to ask God's forgiveness. Um, so strong, he went on to say, are the temptations to indulge in undue severities. And so great is the deceitfulness of the human heart that there is an adequate call and abundant reason for not only expressing our regret for past shortcomings, but publicly and deliberately under the influence of the feelings we now cherish and by the aid of divine grace, resolving that we will take care, again, not to offend in this way. All right, so far, he's just saying, look, I've been guilty. But here's what he goes on to say. He turns to John Brown and he concludes, and I feel it to be, in some respects, peculiarly satisfactory and gratifying that I have the opportunity of making such statements as these in a meeting over which you preside, you, sir, preside. John Brown, another Presbyterian, has been called to the chair and that's when uh, Cunningham stands up and eventually directs his apology to John Brown. And here's what had happened. Um, they had been on opposite sides of different Presbyterian denominations, both in Edinburgh. They'd been on the opposite side of uh, something called the voluntary tax and had written uh, um, in newspapers, very public debate between the two of them. And words got pretty tough between the two of them. And at one point, even uh, Cunningham, when he was passing John Brown on the road, cut him. Now, this is what that meant in the 19th century. Uh, when you passed someone in the 19th century in Scotland, you were to bow. A gentleman would bow to another gentleman. Um, essentially, John Brown bowed to Cunningham, and Cunningham just kept going. Um, so that kind of gives you the sense of here are grown men sometimes acting like children. And um, finally, Cunningham apologizes for the first time to John Brown after this long, protracted battle. And it had a tremendous impact on, um, on, the, on the floor, as it were. You could hear, apparently, uh, the kind of uh, surprise that this kind of thing would happen. And, and uh, John Brown then immediately rose, deeply affected by it, and confessed that he too had erred, acknowledging that even during their estrangement he had never ceased to admire Cunningham. He concluded by stating that henceforth I shall esteem and love him more than ever. Uh, another man said this, um, he had opened the meeting with prayer. He later wrote that the candor and honorably ingenious, we wouldn't use that word, but ingenious or ingenious um, acknowledgments of Cunningham occasioned one of the most memorable displays of Christian magnanimity and tenderness witnessed in the history of the church. Now, um, that may be a slight exaggeration, but there was a lot of truth to it. And it changed the tenor of the meeting. This um, true humbling before one another enabled them then to move forward and to become eventually the Evangelical Alliance. So I show that, I share that because um, Cunningham was a very fallen man, a great leader of the church. Uh, his books were still published, but he was um, truly, um, he, he was an ornery cuss at times. And uh, you, could, you didn't want to 
He didn't want to be on the other side of an argument with him. But here, there's true humility. And that helps lead to true unity in, in this body. Um, all right. Now, here's what happens, though. The meeting goes really well. They've decided um, that they want to move forward. They've uh, essentially voted everything. Every vote they had was unanimous. Um, but they got all kinds of opposition the minute the meeting was over. Uh, Church of England said essentially uh, they called people like Cunningham, those who were part of the uh, free church that had left the state church, they called them schismatics and said, uh, why should we join with you? You're schismatic until you return to the true church. What should we have to do with you? They had actually called a meeting before this meeting, the Liverpool Conference. The Church of England then decided to boycott the meeting altogether. Church of Scotland um, boycotted uh, as well uh, or didn't show up. Um, and uh, afterwards uh, had a lot to, uh, to do with kind of mocking the events that happened. Now, when I say boycotted, that's partly true and partly false. Part of what happened was the Free Church was the one who was responsible for, in Scotland, sending the letters out. And they essentially just didn't send the letters out in time to the Church of Scotland. Um, so, again, I'm trying to give you a little bit of warts and all picture of the history of the Church because, um, you know... One of the things I'm absolutely convinced of as I study and teach church history is that if it were not for God, there would be no church. Now, we know that. God established it. But we would not be able to keep it going if he didn't come in all the time and help us out. That's just the truth. Um, Okay. Free Church of Scotland. There were members of the Free Church of Scotland, Cunningham, who was a leader of that, um, who didn't like it either. They were afraid it would mean compromise. They eventually settled that fairly well. But the big problem that they faced was abolitionists. you had the question being raised, well, if they're going to have American members who are slaveholders, uh, is that a right thing to do? Um, Glasgow Emancipation Society tracked, will slaveholders be admitted to membership in it, and will its influence go to support and perpetuate slavery? Secretary of the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society lodged an official protest with the London Division of the Alliance Provisional Committee imploring them to deny fellowship to all who either directly participate or acquiesce in upholding the enslavement of their fellow men. Okay, what happens then? They eventually have um, another meeting to get ready for this uh, meeting, and then finally they will have uh, the uh, they have a Birmingham conference and, and the Evangelical Alliance. But what happens when the Evangelical Alliance finally meets in London? Uh, they had become involved in the slavery issues. What are they going to do? And one man had had suggested that at one point they just um, they not exclude American slaveholders, but essentially not send them invitations to come. Um, and so they didn't come. And they wouldn't come. And by the time that the gathering meets in London, America has essentially stayed out of it. This was supposed to be a gathering of world Christians. And America says no because of the slavery issue. So sadly, um, uh, one person said there, as they, what they agreed to do was have a British alliance and an American alliance. You know, the whole idea is the unity of evangelicals around the world. And in response to the idea of having two different alliances, which doesn't make any sense, one person said this is virtually a severing of the, a dissevering of the alliance. We are now to have a British alliance instead of having what was here before been the charm and the glory of the whole project and alliance for the world. All right. Um, within a few months, the British uh, branch does organize in London. The American branch doesn't organize. It just fails to organize altogether. 
And uh, about a year later, Cunningham, very wisely, when they were still facing problems about the formation of the Evangelical Alliance, he said, anyone not anticipating difficulties with a movement of this nature must know little of human nature and of the history of the church. It is always problematic when we join together with other Christians. It shouldn't be so much, but it has proven time and time again not to be that way. Now, let me just close with a couple of thoughts uh, for tonight. Um, Cunningham went on to say this. uh, The Alliance, nonetheless, was the most important movement to the great object of the Savior's prayer, which had marked the history of the Christian church since the period of the Reformation. It was time, he declared, to do something by union for important common Christian objects and at the same time to be paving the way for that more complete union upon which the Christian heart alone could rest with complacency and which alone could be a full realization of the Savior's prayer. Um, Okay, so it's formed. There are still problems. The Americans don't join in with the the British um, alliance. Nevertheless, um, here's what I want to kind of conclude with. It has become a powerful movement. And I'm not here to push the evangelical alliance. I'm just saying, even though there was failure from the outset in some ways, God used the formation of the evangelical alliance and the formation of um, many, many other societies in the 19th century for the sake of mission. And here's how. Um, The 19th century became the greatest century of Christian um, missions movement in the history of the world. Nothing has ever been like it, quite frankly. Um, uh, Kenneth Scott Lauderetta, the, the historian of the expansion of the church, said this, nothing to equal the 19th century dissemination of Christianity had been seen in the history of the faith. Nothing remotely approaching it could be recorded of any other religion at any time in the human scene. So the Evangelical Alliance, along with other evangelical missionary societies, had great success. The gospel spread around the globe in the 19th century in ways that it had never done before. Um, to give you an idea of this, in 1800, there were a total of 100 Protestant foreign missionaries in the entire world. 100. By 1910, just over 100 years later, another survey recorded 33 separate regions or countries in the world where at least 100 evangelical Protestant missionaries were at work. And the proportion of the world's population that was Christian uh, grew from about 23% in 1800 to almost 35% in 1914. This rate of growth represented the fastest proportional growth of the church since its earliest centuries. All right. By the end of the 19th century, essentially now, we can no longer talk about the church just located in certain spots. The world has become global. It is essentially in almost every nation of the world by the end of the 19th century. And I, um, and that happened to a large degree because evangelicals united in many, many different societies and sent missionaries all around the world. Uh, finally, um, the World Evangelical Alliance, which um, formed in 1951, did kind of achieve uh, the early vision of the Evangelical Alliance. This is finally a global alliance uh, representing 600 million evangelicals in 120 nations around the world. All right. We have a checkered past, um, but there are so many things that are so good about our past. And, um, you know, every Christian movement is checkered in many ways. But nevertheless, uh, the good news has gone out. But it has happened um, when Christians have said we're going to work together, when we're going to work with each other. 
And what I'm going to show you tomorrow, again, two of my heroes, I'm going to show you, especially with Wilberforce, he has a group of people that he works with very, very closely you know, on a smaller scale than what we're looking at here. Um, and I think you'll be very encouraged by, by the two of, of them, Shaftesbury and Wilberforce. They're two people that um, are very, very different. Wilberforce, for instance, is one of those um, always happy people. He's just very cheerful. Um, and, and on the other hand, you've got Shaftesbury, who is a man who grew up with a horrible family, was always insecure, always uh, afraid he's going to face depression again, as he did time and time again. And yet both of these men um, were used by God to do things that um, we can look back on and really rejoice in. Um, both fallen men, but God used them in extraordinary ways. Any comments or questions uh, before we go home? Yes, sir. That when you uh, mentioned, first of all, I think the uh, Church of Scotland. Yes. You said, I think, two or three men, and you mentioned William Cunningham. Oh, yes. Who were the other two? Thomas Chalmers. He will be the most famous of them. And then Robert Candlish. C-A-N-D-L-I-S-H. Robert Candlish. Uh Yeah, those were the three real leaders of the move to um, start the Free Church of Scotland. Okay, Was a hand somewhere over here? Yes. You know, um, are there situations where people with different ethos um, but common creedal convictions would be precluded from union? I'm not sure I'm understanding your question. Well, think of the example with uh, people who are for slavery and against it. Oh, 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 yes, you're right. Right, yes. They have common creole convictions. Yes, right. Is it right for them to be in there? Ah, that's a good question. That's a hard question. Um, And it was one that was debated a lot. do you have a thought about that? Are you thinking about one another? Um, I do. I'm asking you. Yeah. Here's where. Uh, yeah. Here's. You know, I would. I would have to take these kind of things on a case by case basis. But here's where I kind of come down on. If I join together for the sake of a particular mission, it doesn't mean that I'm embracing everything that that person or that group does or believes. And so I'm willing at times to join together with people or groups that are very different from me. Uh, maybe creedally the same, but very different in other ways from me. So I, I am open to that. I would want to look at it on a case-by-case basis. But now I'd love to hear from you so maybe I can respond to exactly what, what you're thinking. Well, I think there could be situations like that. Mm-hmm. Because there can be a sense in which you're joining together gives affirmation to the ethos of that group. Yes. Um, here's where the concern comes is, are we guilty about association? Is that what you're saying, or is it something slightly different? Well, I mean, I'm generally very positive towards associating yes. with people right. from different streams of life. Mm-hmm. But I think that there could be situations, and the slavery one might be one, might be thinkable of others as well. Yeah. Where perhaps the difference is so strong, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where that uh, it would really not proper. You know, it, could, it, it may come down to um, a practical question. Does my joining with them then give them more credence than they would have otherwise? And so it may come down to that kind of question. What's happened is that in 1833, Britain has finally concluded the slave business. It's done. Slavery is over in 1833. 
And this is going on 13 years later, so it's still very fresh. And um, you have a number of uh, abolitionists travel from America even over to Britain to really agitate uh, against this kind of thing happening. So, um, you know, in that kind of environment, Cunningham would say, he would have said, by joining with them, we're not necessarily approving of what they're doing. But nevertheless, it was one of those questions where, practically speaking, some people would have considered that they were. And so in that case, I think, you do, I think there's a practical, there's a wisdom question. You know, um, is it right at this time to join with this group? I, I, think there, I think there's a wisdom question sometimes that comes into play. Anything else? Any comments or more questions? You mentioned the decline of the free church in Scotland over yes. the years. What, what would you attribute that to? Uh, are you yeah. familiar with the free church much at all? Or did you? It's a low place, very, very small. Yeah. yeah. It is, it's, they're called, in fact, by, not by themselves, <laughs> but by the others, the We Freeze. And uh, because it's, uh, you know, I don't know, what, maybe 20,000, maybe 15,000 members? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very small now com compared to what we would have considered. Um, well, they had, they had, they've had a number of splits. Um, at times, and they've just gone through a very significant uh, decision. Um, to, to, and uh, recently, they've—if I, if I remember exactly—they have only recently allowed individual congregations to choose to do something other than simply psalm singing. So it's been a very, very tight um, knit group, and some things are very, very closely defined. But liberalism becomes a part in in the late part of the 19th century, um, and. Uh, with the Bible, especially you have some kind of German ideas coming into the church in the 19th, late part of the 19th century, even the free church. So that'll cause some division at times. Um, part of what's happened there, too, is that the church in Scotland is a very small thing. Uh, it's, it's greatly reduced compared to what it was. Um, when we lived there in the 90s, you might have... Maybe 14% of the population going to church on any kind of regular basis. That was it. And so it's, it is a small number within the country now already. And I would say Baptists have made significant inroads in a wonderful way, in a positive way there. Um, but the Presbyterian denominations that are there are, with the exception of the Church of Scotland, which is, would be like the Presbyterian Church USA here, the mainline church, with the exception of the Church of Scotland, the others are very, very, very small. Yes. At the time the Evangelical Alliance is forming, are they um, in conversation at all with uh, what's going on in the Netherlands or in Germany? Or at this point, is this a sort of anglophone? Well, um, the leaders are primarily British and American, but they are in conversation with people elsewhere. And their their true intent was to have a worldwide alliance. They hoped from they hoped that people would come from all over the world. It primarily became a British. It was a British event at the end of the day. Um, that, grow, that grew eventually into the World Evangelical Alliance um, that has a number of evangelical alliances around the world, uh, individual nations with their own alliances. All right, anything else? Well, let me pray for us and uh, look forward to seeing you in the morning. Father, uh, thank you that um, at the end of the day, we don't trust in the people in our history, but we trust in you. And we do thank you that you have... Uh, moved in our history to take the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to uh, the globe. We thank you that you love this world. 
not the sinful things, of course, of this world, but you love this world. You have created it, and you have placed us here. And we thank you that you haven't left us here. Father, I pray as we rest tonight that you will uh, give us a real sense of rest after a week of work. And I pray tomorrow morning that you will um, encourage us greatly by the way you have used people in the past to um, make such a difference uh, in their world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. You can feel free to leave whatever you've got right here because I don't think... I don't think anyone's going to take it. (laughs) Computers, maybe not. But uh, anything else, uh, safe where it's at. And we will, uh, looking forward to it tomorrow very much. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Honeycutt. And we'll see you tomorrow morning. Thank you.